I'm Rob. And I'm Marty. And welcome to Trades Planning, a podcast that tries to make sense of international trade, business, and expat life without putting it asleep. In episode 59, we'll talk about how ambitions have cooled on a new global trade route through the Middle East. And my heart. How the EU policy on, I'm using air quotes here, farm to fork is causing Geneva to work from home. And of course, economic Jenga in the Chinese real estate sector. And later, we'll be joined by Simon Evanet of the University of St. Gallen and the Global Trade Alert to talk about why he is judgy about trade measures, and he is, why he's bucking the trend on industrial policy. Spoiler alert, he's not really that for it. Nope. And the complications of what we think would be an excellent new economic tool, the kebab index. Kebab, not kebab. Kebab. And we'll throw out a few points on listener feedback and sneak in a news roundup and a few jokes. So let's get into it before we start running out of dad jokes. Well, everybody, welcome to episode number 59. That would be, you'll be wondering, the atomic number of praesodinium, a rare earth element that is part of the lanthanide series. Keen listeners will know that we've been talking quite a bit about the lanthanide series the last couple of episodes. I love the lanthanide theory. Thank you. That's one of the best theories we have. I know a good speech therapist. I actually thought praesodinium was the era that the uh, dinosaurs died in, but it's not. It's the third highest official in Rome. <laughs> the one who stabbed Caesar last. <laughs> it's but the that, guy with the, the guy with the with the olive thing on with, his head with the eyebrows. Anyway, neither here nor there. The one in the pajamas. The planet Mercury also completes one rotation on its axis approximately every fifty-nine Earth days. I just call those days, but yeah, <laughs> thanks. And finally, the song uh, "The Fifty Nine Street Bridge" (parentheses feeling groovy) by Simon and Garfunkel is a well-known song that references that references the Fifty Nine Street Bridge in New York City. My mom used to work on the 59th Street Bridge. There was a food emporium there. Okay. You that sounds a little odd when you say, my mom used to work a bridge. <laughs> she used to work the 59th Street I, Bridge, I my heard, mom. I heard she used to work under the bridge. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's a food emporium, an AMP under the bridge. Ma was a troll, it's fine. Ma was a troll, an old school troll, not one of these <laughs> internet trolls. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of heard how this is going to come out as I was saying it, but I was committed to the luck. <laughs> Some, some would say actually that uh, we are like the Simon and Garfunkel of, of trade podcasts, but I'm definitely Simon because Rob is the Garfunkel. No, that's not true. Rob is Simon. He has the voice of an angel. Oh, my heart is breaking. This is not February 14th, folks. Okay. Pagan holidays aside, we also want to say a big warm welcome to Armina and Angela. Welcome. Welcome. They have joined us as co-executive producer extraordinaires on trades planning. So Armina has joined us officially since about a week ago, and Angela will join officially in the next week or two. What's a new kind of job, like a prompt engineer? The, the new Garfunkel. The, the new Garfunkel. What's Fungle. plural of a Garfunkel? Yoko Ono, but with AI. <laughs> we're, we're really happy to have them on board. Sad to see Christina leave us, but also very excited to have Armina and Angela, and looking forward to see how they can contribute. We'll be looking to do much more on the podcast. It's going to be a muscular podcast now. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. With Thank a much deeper stack of apps working for it. Th this podcast will not sk skip leg day is what he means. I got you. Okay. I got a plant that's called leg day for that very reason. <laughs> anyway, as always, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so already. Make sure you catch our future episodes coming out. And better yet, you can also share it with a friend or a stranger. You can find us anywhere you get your podcast. So do subscribe to all of them. And why not also leave a review? We know you've got time if you're listening to this podcast. Anyway, I finally have a trade angle to go with all the watch talk, Rob. And I think that's important. So I don't know if you heard, but the governor, 
Arnold Schwarzenegger was recently detained over a, a Swiss watch. Basically, he was detained at Munich airport for not declaring a luxury watch from Swiss brand Audemars Piguet that he was intending to auction for charity. So customs, it was in a weird series of events, customs struggled to process his tax payment due to issues with the credit card machine and the ATM limit. Basically, their credit card machine didn't work. And the amount that he owed was over the ATM limit. And so he had to wait for the customs officials to get a new card reader in so he could buy it. Also, the nearest bank was closed. There was a trifecta of things going on. Apparently, Schwarzenegger, Arnie, cooperated throughout the process. And he was eventually able to prepay the potential taxes on the watch, which ended up being more than the actual value of the watch, which shows you trade works. A spokesperson for Schwarzenegger said that, quote, we hope that Germany invests as much energy in reorganizing its economy and making it more environmentally friendly as it does in levying customs duties on people's property. Ouch. I hey, Arnie. I feel like there's a something having to do with Austrians here, but that's something to unpack in a, in a different episode. So there's a trade angle here. Basically, pay your customs duties. Make sure you let customs officials know that you are traveling with pricey watches. How do they get him, though? Like, we all have watches on. How do they know to get him? Because he had a box when they in his luggage or in his person on his person that said Audemars Piguet watch for charity written on the top. He's just talking on the left no, side of your own. There's a photo of him holding the box. Okay. That does not sound like a real photo. <laughs> Who took that photo? Customs? Um, I guess his body men, I don't know. His hangers <laughs> on. So yeah, so there so there is a trade angle here finally. Also, we did have some feedback, supposed to be a listener feedback segment. So I did get some feedback. A nice colleague stopped me. She said she's a fan. Great. She said, I don't like all that talking at the beginning. You should get right to the information part. I feel like this was AI generated. <laughs> We're literally talking too much right now. And part of our talking too much is her feedback. I don't believe. So thank you very much for you. that. I don't believe. But it's good to have a fan. And uh, Artie in the future is going to give you the timings where you can fast forward to. Yeah, we're just going to add chapters. <laughs> yeah, actually, it's already in chapters. You can tell her that. Go to chapters. Yeah, go to your favorite chapter. Speaking of crickets, let's get out of this thing. <laughs> <laughs> I was so ready. So then, jumping right into the important news stories this episode, we've got lots of news coming from the Red Sea and economic corridors. The ambitious India-Middle-East-Europe economic corridor, known as EMIC, I just made that up, is now a victim of regional instability. So the project envisages building new rail links between the Arabian Peninsula, which would link India and Europe, as the name suggests. But it's going nowhere for now as Houthi attacks disrupt Red Sea shipping and turmoil spreads across the region, meaning that IMEC, as it's actually known, is effectively on ice. Also comes on the heels, I should mention, of this recent attack, which resulted in the death of three US servicemen and may actually put more question marks above the region and, and what follows in terms of military action. That's a setback, as, as I alluded to, for the U.S. and West more broadly, because the plan served multiple purposes, one to counter China's Belt and Road, which we talked about quite a bit, not just on this podcast, but in general. Also building influence in the so-called Global South. The, the U.N. had to get involved, so with the Red Sea being a vital artery for oil and trade, Houthi attacks on shipping and the blockage of the Suez Canal shows that these aren't just re regional issues, so they're also global headaches, and the U.N. would agree. Our, our very own UNCTAD has reported that this underscores the significance of these waterways, which we've also talked about significantly on the podcast, as they're critical for global energy and, and commodity flows. And again, I think this all really highlights how oil prices, supply chains, and even our, our daily goods can be caught in the middle when things like this happen. Yeah, definitely. We see Jan Hoffman, who's been on the show three times, is of course tracking this. He's a shipping guy. 
And he's even tracking certain indicators, which are really interesting for, I think, for trade geeks. One of them is called ton miles. So how long does the average ton of goods move? And there it's gone up significantly, maybe is it 15, 20%? It continues to go up. And this is a kind of indicator of complexity of shipping. So how far are things going? How many stops are they making? And this, of course, is going to be increased if everybody has to go around the Red Sea. So that's, it's significant, as you said, for developing countries, for everybody. And it's, it's just another, let's say another byproduct of fragmentation and byproduct of, of these kinds of disruptions. I think what's interesting is that this plan for this trade route before this happened, I didn't even know this was a plan. Neither did I. So I think it's pretty, that's a pretty interesting plan, but everybody's heard of Belt and Road. Everybody knows what China's trying to do. And the U.S. came up with this IMEC and you and I haven't really heard of it. Now it's interesting. It's an interesting thought. It's a trail right through our allies. And again, you can see why would an Iran want to disrupt this? Because it's clearly in competition with them for, let's say, access to shipping, access to goods, access to economic opportunity. Yeah. I, I think this, despite all that, I think for me, this shows that trade is just a, a vehicle. It's a tool. And a lot of times part of the reason we started this podcast is because trade was taken as a, the end in of itself. And we oftentimes forget that, as I said, it's a vehicle and it can be used in different ways, depending on whichever way the geopolitical headwinds are, are blowing. Right. So I think it, it, in that sense, we need to also reckon with that anyway. Over in France, the other thing I want to talk about is that organic farmers are not just tilling the land. They're also blocking highways with bales of hay and tractors and also spraying manure on public buildings and supermarkets, which I think makes sense because I was wondering what smelled when Rob walked in, into the studio and it, they might have sprayed you since. I, actually, still, I still want to be on the barricade. I still like to be part of a demonstration. I think it'd be fun. Really? Anyway, so they're facing low prices, or at least they say facing low prices, high costs, and lots of red tape, which all three things we associate with France. And because of this, they're taking their tractors to the streets. So the protests are more than just a local affair. They follow other demonstrations by European farmers in countries like Germany and Romania. It can be seen, I guess, as a microcosm of the global agricultural sector grappling with sustainability, profitability, and also fighting against uh, market pressures. The de demonstrations also seem to echo sort of global concerns about how the sustainability of agriculture is managed and also the real cost of organic farming, more importantly. But something we talked a bit about with Fabian Waldemeyer last episode from Fair Trade Switzerland. Yeah. So the question, is this a trade issue? So the answer, I mean, our answer, of course, yes. everything. Otherwise, trade, otherwise we wouldn't have a podcast. But so why is it a trade issue? So I'll give you an example. I was listening to a, to, to a radio show. This was about uh, measuring residues in rice. So it doesn't sound immediately like a thing. And they were saying certain bio rices don't have any residues. And they were saying that there's a French indication géographique, Riz de Camargue, that doesn't have any residues. Then there's a range of other rices, especially basmatis, that do have residues. And they have residues of chemicals that are not permitted in France. And yet this rice with these residues is permitted. These rices are permitted to come into France with the residues and they are legal and allowable. So that there's a trade issue here. They're wondering if we're not allowed to even use these chemicals, but the French consumer can buy a rice mm. legally with these residues, where is the coherence between those two things? And they're also saying, even within the European Union, there's this farm to fork thing where they're trying to, they're trying to track the whole food system, which on paper seems like a great idea, but of course is extremely complicated and heavy. And they're saying the French are regulating on top of the European regulation. So they're even seeing tensions between, let's say, France and Spain or France and 
uh, Eastern European uh, countries. It, it becomes more and more complex as you try to legislate the sustainability within a market. What do you do to, to the trade policy around it? And this was also a key thing in some of these votes that the Swiss have been having. They said, you want this to be a fair playing field if we're going to vote for certain changes within the livestock sector. You remember some months ago, we were talking about that, that we want this to be applied to livestock raising outside, or we want there to be some sort of trade barrier or something put up that will make it an even playing field. These are really complex issues. And I would say that the French farmer is, is right. They are under a lot of pressure. And you're absolutely right. The conversation with, with Fabian was about Swiss consumers. But French consumers have gone way down in their consumption of bioproducts because they can't afford it mm. or they don't want to. They become more price sensitive. So this is, in fact, having a perverse effect that's going against the transition to bio. So the bio producers will be the ones that are using less chemicals that are better to the soil, that are using less water, where their soil can retain water, all these good things we want them to do. They're actually got a smaller market. I think we have two things. One is that this, the regulation we were talking about in the European Union, but it'll be the same in other rich countries. They've got to think very carefully about how it's implemented. I think Europe is doing the right thing, but some of the criticism of them sitting at desks and coming up with the stuff without thinking about how it's going to be implemented is fair. And the second thing is that you do have to have some coherence between your trade policy and some of these internal regulations. We know that. I think in many cases, these are two different bureaucracies. They're two different sets of rulemaking and the bringing them together is difficult. And CBAM is an example. The border adjustment mechanism is one way to try to, for instance, to level that playing field. And again, we know even that the implementation we see is having potentially perverse effects. So it's a very complex situation. Yeah. Reading the article, it struck me that some of these farmers make only 500, sometimes 500 euros a month, which is incredible to read that in, in a country like France, which it just seems frightening. And you can understand why now they're blocking the highway to, to your house. Very much so. And we know that there have been, there's been inflation in key uh, inputs. Mm. We know that we, we've talked also about how food systems are set up to provide for cheap food. They're not really set up to provide for a reasonable earnings for farmers. That's not how the system works. So we, yeah. we're in this tension. We know this has long been a problem in the, not a problem in the U.S. It's long driven people out of farming in the U.S. and driven to consolidation of farms. And the French don't want to do it. So the 500 even that these guys are making is heavily due to subsidies. Mm. So if there were no subsidies, they could be around zero, but- And my, I guess uh, you can understand what supermarket like Carrefour is telling PepsiCo they're not gonna be you know, stocking some of their products because of inflation. I guess it, it makes a bit more sense when you add this bit of a context to it. But also I think it would be really interesting for us on the French shelves, there's a milk which has as its brand, this milk provides a fair wage to farmers. And it tells you exactly how much the farmer is paid for the milk. And that is pretty rare. If you're a consumer and you want to know how much the producer is actually making, you try it. I've tried it with coffee. You can't really find out. Most of the roasters and other people in the middle of the chain either don't know or they're not disclosing it, or they're using, and if, uh, Fabian, forgive me here, they're using a proxy like uh, Fair Trade, which doesn't necessarily help you. It doesn't really tell you whether this person is making a wage that they can live on. That kind of transparency could be quite useful at some point for us to say, I'd rather pay, I'd, I'd pay 10 cents more, but I want the 10 cents to go directly to the producer. Yeah, yeah. And the last thing I guess we want to talk about is our favorite thing, especially Rob's, China. 
So Evergrande has recently, China, China with a Y, Evergrande has gone bust. The once towering real estate giant finally has been ordered to liquidate by a Hong Kong court. A decision follows Evergrande's debt crisis, which began in 2021 uh, following COVID, something we've been talking about quite a bit on the podcast, predicting it, some would say. That means that Evergrande, which has been, as I said, limping along for a couple of years now, is unable to pay its debts, has been unable to pay its debts or function normally, but still in operation, will now likely face a long period of dismantling its giant business with Hawaii. It was projects that span hundreds of cities and uh, unrelated businesses like electric vehicle companies not named BYD. However, this liquidation may also have ripple effects on supply chains and international business dealings uh, because of the obvious reasons. Finally, this will also probably not only impact China's property sector, which has been struggling for a while, but also it adds to uncertainty regarding foreign investments in China and might even lead to reduced uh, foreign capital inflows, which could impact China's economic growth and, and global markets and trade by association. Basically, it's like watching a game of Jenga. It's like watching a game of Jenga through the fog and seeing if a piece comes out or maybe it doesn't. It's drunk, blindfolded Jenga. So I thought this really, so the amount of construction is just mind-blowing that they've done. And they say that 1.4 billion people in China cannot fill all these apartments. One guy had estimated, so this is the way top of the estimates, that they've got enough housing for 3 billion people. So they're going to have to keep working at it. Thinking ahead. In fact, they're about to peak in terms of population. On, on the other hand, we've been predicting this collapse for a long time, and it doesn't seem to be that big a deal. A, so bro- a broken podcast is right twice a day. <laughs> well, another quote I saw was, the only thing that's collapsed is the rhetoric about the Chinese economy. So I don't know where we are between the collapse of Evergrande and the collapse of our rhetoric about the Chinese economy. It but never stops. There's a lot of real estate available in China. So and buy the dip. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I honestly... Simon Evanet is the founder of the Sangalan Endowment for Prosperity Through Trade and an economics professor at the University of Sangalan, my old job. He founded the Global Trade Alert, the independent commercial policy monitoring initiative also based in Sangalan. Longtime listeners might remember Simon joined us on the podcast two years ago to talk about, you guessed it, trade. And you may also remember that my nanny, Rosemary, also is from Sangalan. And so this is a shout out to her who took care of me in the two of the best years of my life, the 1960s. Wow, how many Rosemary's Babies joke did you make? Because <laughs> that's the first thing I think of when somebody tells me their name is Rosemary. Simon, thanks for joining us once again. This is your second round on trades planning. Last time we spoke was about two years ago. What have you been up to since? In the past two years, we've carried on trying to track very, in a very detailed manner what governments are doing on the trade, investment, subsidy, and digital policy-related fronts. Our work on the trade and uh, competitiveness front has really revealed a surge in government interventions, which are mainly favoring local firms. So we're at this huge plateau really of governments picking favorites in trade policy and often doing it uh, by selective subsidies for specific subsidies. On the digital policy front, we've carried on our tracking there and it's just amazing the pace at which governments are introducing regulations there. So. We're in a phase of uh, either incredible unilateralism and or regulatory overdrive, both of those you can find in the data. I guess that leads nicely into the the next bit we wanted to talk about, and that's on industrial policy, our favorite thing to talk about. 
This seems to have corresponded with lots of protectionist policies. And GTA recently announced the, the launch of this new industrial policy observatory, so NIPO. I don't know if WIPO is going to have an intellectual property claim against that, but that's for another podcast. <laughs> Can you define what, I guess first, what industrial policy is for listeners who may not be uh, marinating in this every day? And tell us what NIPO is, is telling us about industrial policy and how it's evolving. Also, tell us if I'm pronouncing it correctly. So first, you are, pronou you are pronouncing uh, NIPO correctly. Well done. Secondly, we have not received any lawsuits from WIPO yet, but stay tuned. Third, industrial policies are policies which favor either particular firms or particular sectors. So exchange rate depreciation, which cuts across all sectors, would not traditionally be seen as an example of industrial policy. So the way to think about industrial policy is that it is selective. And as a result, it potentially can alter the conditions of competition favoring certain firms or favoring certain sectors or other, other sectors. And this is where it starts getting a bit uh, tricky. Now, in general, for industrial policy, I think the question one has to ask is, what problem is it trying to fix? The, I think the economists think about this the right way, which is to say, where is the market breaking down and what's the best way to fix this? Much of the industrial policy that we're seeing in the NIPO takes the form of firm-specific subsidies or subsidy schemes for sectors. And the question then is, if, um, if subsidies are the solution, what is the problem? There is a risk, and I think it's a significant one, that many governments are just reaching for subsidies because they, don't, they haven't really thought through what problem they're trying to fix. Now, the NIPO has shown that the largest stated motive for a lot of industrial policy interventions is promoting competitiveness. It's not geopolitics, it's not national security, and it's not climate change. So you have to ask how much of this industrial policy is actually very new. Most of the defenders of industrial policy have been using all these new FO worries, such as geopolitics, resilience, to justify industrial policy intervention. But in fact, when governments come to describe why they're doing it, actually old-fashioned promoting competitiveness is the most important reason or the most frequently given reason. So for these reasons, again, the jury is out collecting data on the fine grain level for the first year. And there is more data to be collected for 2023 than we have found. So the, the picture may change, but there are good reasons even now to be a bit skeptical about the rush towards subsidy driven industrial policy. So I think I know how you're going to answer this, but do you think there exists any kind of subsidy or, or protectionist measure that would be okay? So in the case of subsidies, I'm not opposed to all subsidies at all. So let's take the case of electric vehicles. If we want to encourage the adoption of electric vehicles, and we want to offer consumer subsidies, and those consumer subsidies should be nationality blind, then I would have no problem with that. If, that, if the, the goal is to secure or get people to buy more EVs, then offer a consumption subsidy. In general, actually, I think there's a, an interesting case as to whether we should be more supportive of consumption subsidies that are nationality blind than producer subsidies, which are targeted towards particular firms opposed to public policy intervention in general. And I think that's a very important point because being against discrimination trade does not mean holding to a sort of libertarian, no regulatory model, quite the opposite. And I think you can have public policy interventions that what matters is whether they discriminate between domestic and foreign firms on the basis of their nationality and on no other grounds. And that's where I think trade people are legitimately concerned about some of the measures which are put in place. 
Do you think these countries, we won't name them, they have valid arguments at some level for what they're doing? Because if I could just boil it down very um, superficially, it's China has already been doing this. Their EV market has already been subsidized. Why should we not do the same thing? Do you think there's any validity to that? I think if that was all that there was going on, then you could start at that position. I'm not sure that you would justify trying to raise the price of EVs using tariffs, essentially, to shield your local producers from competition. So there's still, even if you thought that the Chinese subsidies were bad, it's not obvious that the tariff response is the right response. But I think the bigger prior question to ask is why is it the European car producers were so far behind the curve on developing EVs? Why did the Chinese wake up and realize that, hey, in a world where we have climate change and we need to transition to cleaner technologies? So I think that's yeah. that's the case which needs to be answered, really. But also the oh. Germans are good at combustion engines. They're really, it's a complicated machine. They do really well. They got more and more efficient, more powerful at it. Fuel was cheap. No, I think, I, and there, there is something to the argument that, that uh, you know, in many of these uh, companies which are led by engineers, they know what they know, and uh, and they they stick to what they know, and it's not a bad practice because after all, we want stuff that works, right? You have to wonder whether there was a level of conservatism there which was excessive. Are we talking about cars or economists right now? Either <laughs> <laughs> electric engines are also boring. They do require, I'm told, a very different skill set, right? And they also require far fewer workers to pr- produce. So the the trade unions in Germany have made it very clear what they feel about this consequence of the clean energy transition. So again, I think there's a lot of different reasons as to why the European EV industry, sorry, why European car makers may have fallen behind their Chinese rivals, which have got nothing to do with Chinese subsidies. And what about chips? We had Chris Miller on a few months ago. Do you think there's a good reason to want to subsidize the chip industry, especially for the fact that it is so focused on one small part of the world, in this case, Taiwan, which comes with geopolitical ramifications, do you think there's a good reason to invoke, quote unquote, national security? Maybe one doesn't need to invoke national security. Maybe one just needs to invoke sensible risk management, which is that if you are going to source um, a particularly important technology, which is needed for uh, not only advanced um, manufacturing, but also national security from a single location, and that single location is in a difficult place. Then maybe on risk diversification grounds, there is an argument, but then the question becomes, how do you intervene in a way at re- a lowest possible cost? And I'm not sure that the measures which are being put in place at the moment have been driven by that particular logic. And I think the consequence will be is that we will end up having much more expensive semiconductor chips. These fabs will come online much slower than people realize. And we may end up also slowing down the pace of innovation in that particular sector as well. So there will be a price to be paid for this risk management. I think the way to think about that is in risk management terms rather than outright national security terms. And again, I think one should try and avoid wherever possible thinking in outright national security terms, simply because some people think that gives a trump card to anyone who wants to do whatever policy they like. I think that's a good way of thinking about it. What's also scary when you're looking at chips in particular is that TSMC is so, so, so far ahead of pretty much everybody else that it, we're talking maybe not even years, but decades till these new subsidized companies in the US or wherever really catch up. And I think the associated point with this is that, and we were seeing news reports of this, which is that there just is not 
the trained personnel in either yeah. Germany or the United States to be able to produce these semiconductors at anything at the same level. And so again, those countries might find themselves having a lot of substandard semiconductor chips on hand. And again, this may end up reinforcing the advantage of other countries. So I think this is a very poorly thought through set of policies. And I think Chris Miller's book is very good at highlighting the sources of the policy errors here. And he doesn't frame it quite in those terms, but one could read his book and you can understand how policy could be poorly chosen when people make intellectual shortcuts like invoking national security. And that's why um, developed countries are favoring immigration to allow those qualified people to come in. Yeah, just not the UK. <laughs> Thanks, Brexit. Thanks, Brexit. So you're at Davos. What was your biggest takeaway? My biggest takeaway from Davos in terms of trade was the, uh, the way in which fragmentation was discussed. So fragmentation has been a big buzzword from a lot of analysts and public policy officials. And my sense is that the analysts have been overthinking fragmentation, overmodeling it in the case of economists. And the officials, who are, of course, averse to any change typically, just see downside risk from fragmentation, and they don't see any of these developments positively. In contrast, and what really surprised me, listening to a number of different senior executives, is how they are taking fragmentation in their stride. For sure, they don't like the additional costs associated with fragmentation. They may not like the additional investments they're having to make, and they don't like the additional uncertainty. But on the other hand, they're reacting to this like all business people do by saying we have to find new revenues. So they are searching for new market segments and new underserved customer groups, mainly in countries which have not taken side in the geopolitical rivalry that's happening. That is largely the emerging markets. And they are searching for new opportunities to make up the lost revenues that they fear they might not get because they can't export as much, say, to the United States or to China. And so what you got was a very different narrative from business people about fragmentation, much less worried about it than what I heard from the analysts. And of course, the biggest warriors were the officials. There was a real distinct difference in how people talked about fragmentation. And I'm not sure that much of that came through in the newspaper reporting on Davos at all. I think we totally agree. And Artie's been saying business finds a way. And of course they do, but there must be also warriors in the economics profession who are thinking, okay, this is additional cost. This is trade diversion. We, we talked yesterday about, or when we last recorded about NVIDIA selling slightly inferior chips to what they should be selling. So there must be hundreds of examples of this. But, but let me get back to the warriors because you sound pretty convincing. You've got a pretty cool database, but economists have had a kind of a bad year and they predicted recession doesn't seem to be coming about. Some of the truisms we're accepting, inequality is growing, are under fire for some methodological weaknesses. Even the head of the IMF is a lawyer, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> At least he's not an economist. It's <laughs> standing on the parapet shouting, don't trust models, economists, bad. So should we believe you, Simon? Should we believe you this time? So first, let's say that as a you know, card-carrying trade economist, I can think of a lot of reasons why fragmentation could be quite distorting of trade and why it's a, a step backwards. What I found interesting is that business people don't look at the problem that way. Business people start the beginning of the year with zero dollars or francs or euros in the bank account. They have to find customers. And so what I took from Davos was 
that companies are actually finding new ways to knit together markets and to, to join up markets and therefore to advance globalization. And that feature, I think, is a little bit overlooked. The corporate responsiveness is overlooked in a lot of the models that we do. And that's, the, I think, the takeaway for those of us in, in the profession who are interested in tracking what's actually going on. Now, as for our, the economics professions past year, yes, there's been a lot of navel-gazing about uh, the performance of uh, different models. And also, by the way, a lot of questioning of empirical work, yeah. right? So that's not modeling. That's actually people questioning whether or not some empirical work's being done right. And I think, to be frank, this is actually very healthy. We should, when there are profound misforecasts or poor forecasts, people should go back and say, okay, why did this error get made? And rather than throwing the baby out with the bathwater, you yeah. have to think, how do we structure an analysis of the economy better? Likewise, when people challenge findings, such as the research inequality, it forces people to go back and think again about how to measure stuff properly. And I think both me. So there's a 1% chance that we could be wrong, or even a 50% chance we could be wrong. People should be putting good ideas out there. They should be challenged on those ideas. They should be asked to show what data they have, just like you have tried to challenge me today, and that's totally appropriate. People want to verify all this good stuff. Where can they go to, to see G the GTA and NIPO? So the Global Trade Alert work, or the GTAs, has its own website called globaltradealert.org. And on that website, on the front page, right at the top, is a, is a banner which takes you to the, the New Industrial Policy Observatory, or NIPO. So it's all there, and you can download the data that's available. We've also, by the way, created a new data kitchen which makes it a lot easier to download whatever data you want from the Global Trade Alert database. So that hopefully will be useful for users. Yum. Excellent. Thanks uh, for joining us. It's been uh, great having you on once again. Hopefully next time you're on the podcast, it won't be two years between interviews. And hope to hear more from you and what the work GTA and NIPO are doing. And good luck with the lawsuit. So, folks... This brings us to our next segment. This is where our correspondent, Michelle, talks to us about the vibe shift. Michelle, is globalization finally dead? Actually, yeah, Rob, globalization's totally dead. I know this because I went to Zurich last weekend. And some of you might know there's a little bit of a difference between French-speaking Switzerland and Zurich or German-speaking Switzerland. Some right. call it the Röstigraben. They do. You might be familiar with that. But actually, I don't think it should be called the Röstigraben at all. It should be called the Mategraben. You know why? Because the hold that Mate has on Swiss Germans is insane. Do you guys drink Mate here? I'm not Uruguayan. No, exactly. Uruguayans do that. We've got a bunch of Argentines that sit in a room sometimes and I open the door and there's Mate. That's and it. they drink it hot. I don't know. I don't I don't. No, they I drink it the in their little he thing the with a <laughs> little straw. Yeah. It's adorable. We it's love adorbs. that. We love it. No, over there they have it in what's like a fizzy drink that's called mate. No. And it's everywhere. Actually, the moment my train passed Fribourg, they started handing out cans of mate. I'm not joking. It's called El Tony to add to the cultural Sounds a little Hispanic. <laughs> yeah. And you go to a bar. What do you normally order? Gin and tonic? Vodka mm -hmm. Red Bull? No. You order vodka mate. Oh, no. You have to. And actually, they serve it to you. They give you a bottle of mate, and then they put it in front of you. So you think it's like a vodka Red Bull where you have to mix it? No. You have to chug half the bottle of mate, and then they put vodka in that bottle. So you have the pressure of having to chug already half of a fizzy drink bottle, 
just to add vodka to it, and then you have to drink that. It worked for Lionel Messi, so maybe I'll, I'll try it. It sounds globalist, though. If it's somebody global. comes up to you on the street and asks, if they come up to you on the street here, you think they want money, they want directions, they want drugs. No, over there they want chewing gum, but not any chewing gum. Mate-flavored mate. chewing gum. I think mate's taking over. I just mate It's a weird, next. like, globalized thing that just hasn't reached Geneva. I feel like it's a dull... First of all, thanks, Geneva, for being a bubble like you are. Yes. But also, I feel like it has a taste of, like, dull leaves. Is it a good taste? It's pretty bad. It's, it's, it's more like Mountain Dew. I think it, it tastes like Mountain Dew. No, the Mountain Dew is delicious. Yeah, it tastes like Mountain Dew. It's green tea. I don't think it's actual mate. I it's think not it's actual Because it doesn't taste like actual mate. Now I'm wondering what all those Argentine guys are actually drinking with those little silver it, straws. That doesn't taste like There's Mountain Dew. In there. Mate and gin. Mate and gin. Just hold the mate. It's <laughs> crazy. It's all over the place. I don't understand it. I don't like it. Actually, that's why we have that. That's why we have that trench exactly. between them and us. Thanks, Michelle. Keep an eye out to see whether globalization may soon be revived. Or not. So this brings us to this week in local news. You wouldn't believe this was true unless you lived in Geneva or really anywhere else. Anywhere else. Let me start off with uh, something that I wanted to share with you. Apparently, America has become an economy of introverts. In New York City, a, a place I think you're familiar with, now the most popular reservation time for restaurants is 5.30 in the afternoon, not 7 or 8. I'm moving back tomorrow. There's also this new thing that people are building into apartments and houses called a snug. You familiar with the snug? Go on. I don't know what that even knows. I didn't more. even read the article. Say more. It's just, do you know what a snug is? It's a way for the nouveau riche to prove they have more rooms than the rest of us. It's just one more room with this. One more room. It, it's basically a <laughs> that one. That I don't have. It's a studio apartment in the Lower East Side. They also said that the article was going through the introvert economy and the fact that people are now spending more time video gaming and watching TV and that although alcohol consumption is still going up in the U.S. It's old people. It's fairly old folks who are sitting at home. So the social economy is suffering. So if you, and young people are somehow not drinking. You can't speak to that. Exactly. I, I had too many vodka mates. <laughs> I'm one vodka mate uh, past that discussion. I think we do need to get out there, folks. We're, we're becoming folks that go to dinner at 5.30, maybe once in a month. That sounds cool, actually. Watch a lot of series and do a lot of drinking at home. I think I just described my own self. You just, you just <laughs> described becoming a new parent. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You need a snug, party. Dinner by 5.30, watching series, and uh, drinking at home. Becoming a parent. Well, folks, that about wraps up episode 59, brought to you by enough apartments to house 3 billion people, a rising tide of ton miles in the Red Sea. And of course, we also want to thank Simon Evanet of the Global Trade Alert, who told us about the dangers of industrial policy, what policymakers really think, and of course, his favorite cover band, The Useful Idiots. I thought it was going to be the Proclaimers. We also want to thank our executive producer, Michelle Olguin. And Armina Sinani for helping highlight the vibe shift, as well as in producing this and every TS episode. Special thanks also to Armina, once again, who's joined us permanently on Trades Planning full-time. We're also looking forward to working with Angela, who will also join us in the coming weeks. Please also don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so already to make sure you catch our next episode coming out very soon. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And remember, folks, you can fast-forward through all the talking parts. Just go to the chapters. Don't forget to leave us a review. 
after you've done the whole chapter thing on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We do read all of them, so please be gentle. You can follow us on Twitter, the artist formerly known as Twitter, on at Tradesplaining or on Instagram at trade.splaining or email us your questions, comments to us the old-fashioned way at trade.splaining at gmail.com. Once again, that's trade.splaining at gmail.com. And remember, folks, listen Listen responsibly. responsibly.